Today's shir is dedicated. The schut of the shir should be for the refuah of Dvora Idel Bat Miriam Bracha. Schut Torah, schut hafatzat Torah, tamod la refuah shlema, refuah nefesh, refuah aguf, hashda ba'agadah b'zman kariv. KMTT, Ki Mitzion Torah. You're listening to the Arab Shabbat program. I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. In attempt to always be in touch with reality and how the Torah is relevant to our reality, we are, as we said, we're right in the middle of the winter. Um, unfortunately, here in Israel, we've been enjoying beautiful sunny days. Uh, good for the tourist industry, but not good for the country. We haven't had rain in a long time. Um, I started uh, adding the tefillah for Atzirat Kashamim into my prayer. Uh, God has scattered some days of rain in there to make us perhaps not strictly according to the Mishnayot and Masachat Ta'anit be demanding tefillot and ta'aniyot, but um, I think anybody with a with their pulse on reality sees that it's time to be praying for these things, um, for rain. There's an article that I saw on the internet um, that the farmers are saying that the fruit supply in the summer might be severely limited due to the lack of rain this winter. Um, and in general, winter is a, a more difficult time for people. Um, as you can hear, your host is sick. People are sick in the winter. It's cold. People aren't out, outside as much. The day is mostly dark. And sometimes it's difficult for us to pick ourselves up in the winter. And in that vein... It's a good time to be getting Sefer Shmot that we began last week. And, and look at this, um, the issue of being able to pick ourselves up from those darker moments, those darker places, and, and how to deal with them. When, there's a, when the solution has already arrived, when the end of Parshat Bo comes, and God takes Bnei Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, and when Parshat B'Shalach comes, and God takes them through the sea and destroys the Egyptian army, and we don't need ha- we, d- we don't need to know how to deal with the darkness anymore. We have to deal with new problems. But Parshat Shmot and Vayera, and perhaps the beginning of Bo as well, we're still in the middle of slavery in Mitzrayim. And we have to know how, from there, we can move towards a better place. Something that appeared to me when I was reading the Psukim in last week's Parsha, in this vein, is the, the Sne. And in the Sne, we are told, of course, the famous Psukim, The Sne, the bush, is engulfed in flames, but it is not being burnt. Uh, very interesting um, very interesting image. 
Uh, Chazal talk about God appearing in the sneh. The sneh is a thorny bush, and God showing through the sneh, through his appearance in the sneh, imo anochi b'tzorah. I am with them in their suffering. That God is suffering, kivyachol, with B'nai Yisrael's suffering. Um, but just a simple read of the psukim seems to imply that the greatness of this vision is the fact that there is a fire and the fire is not burning the the bush. I'm sure there are many different ways that we could uh, try to evaluate this, but I'm going to go in one direction. This is what we would call an irrational, an illogical, an unlikely, an impossible vision. And very interesting in the Psukim that the Torah and its description seems to put the stress on Moshe's ability to see this vision. Vayomer Moshe, asurana ve'er'e hagadol I'm going to go away from my path and see this great vision, why the bush is not burning. And then, Vayar Hashem Kisar Lirot, and perhaps this is the important pasuk, when God sees that he is coming out of his way to look, then, Vayikrai Lav Elohim Itochasne, Vayomer Moshe Moshe, Vayomer Hineini. Only then does God call out from the sne, from the bush, and call to Moshe and the the, the discussion between God and Moshe ensues. It seems that there was a test here. There was a test of Moshe's ability to see this vision. And if he was able to see this vision, only then God would speak to him. Because why couldn't God just have Zap appeared in front of Moshe and said, Moshe, Moshe? And Moshe would have said, Hineni. No, there was an initial test or the sne is burning, or the sne is engulfed in flames but not burning. The sne is not being consumed by the flames. And Moshe has to see it. He has to go to look for it. He has to investigate it. And once he has investigated it, then God can call out to him, and Moshe has passed the test. And perhaps the test on the, on the most basic level is Moshe's ability to see the impossible. The unlikely, if for those of you who prefer that term, or the impossible for those who prefer that term. B'nai Israel are slaves in Mitzrayim. They've been slaves in Mitzrayim now for gener- for several generations, for more than one generation. This is their life. They are slaves. They are slaves to an empire, the Egyptian Empire, a strong empire. In our rational eyes, the likelihood of this nation ever getting out of there is slim to nil. And certainly it happening in a quick period of time. In other words, the possibility of B'nai Israel getting out of Mitzrayim in human terms is impossible or unlikely. However, it became a reality. And God made it a reality. 
when God is involved in the picture, certainly this becomes a, a reality, becomes something that's attainable. It's great work. Ten plagues, Kriyat Yamsuf, but it's attainable. Can Moshe see the impossible? When the impossible is placed in front of him, and it's happening, the sne is in flames, but is not burning, is Moshe going to go look at it, or is Moshe going to dismiss it as a play on his eyes? It's a mirage in the desert, not seeing... Looks like it's not burning, it's probably burning. No, Moshe says, I see the impossible. I don't understand it, but I see the impossible, and I'm going to go investigate it. And this vision is necessary of the leader who's going to take B'nai Israel, this nation of slaves, who has been enslaved for tens of years, perhaps hundreds of years, And he has to take them out. And he's going to change, with God's help, he's going to change reality. And that leader has to be able to see the impossible. Because without that ability to see the impossible, without the ability to believe that it is possible, one cannot lead the nation to a new reality. And Moshe needs that vision. And once God sees that he has that vision and he has that ability to see the impossible, to see how the situation can change, then he can be the leader. Now, when we move along to being able to see things, we see an, int- an interesting phenomenon when we compare the end of last week's Parsha Shemot and, and Parshat Ve'ira. God gives Moshe a long speech, and there's a long exchange at the end of Parshat Shemot to send Moshe to Mitzrayim, and Moshe ultimately goes to Mitzrayim, and he comes to the people with Aaron, and, and he tells them everything that God has, says to, has said to them. And he does the, the otot, the, the miracles with the snake, and the tzara'at, and the, the dam. And, and we read the following, Vayamein ha'am, b'nei Yisrael believed him. Vayishm'u ki fakad Hashem et b'nei Yisrael v'chira'at onyam, vayikadu vayishtachavu. And they heard that God has remembered b'nei Yisrael, and he saw their suffering, and they bowed down. And they bow down, rejoicing, happy, thankful. And then we read, so what has Moshe, Moshe told him? He's told him that God is planning on taking B'nai Yisra out of Mitzrayim. Then we read the beginning of Parshat Ve'ira, which seemingly again, Moshe, God reiterates to Moshe that he's planning on taking B'nai Israel out of Mitzrayim, and Moshe passes this word on to B'nai Israel. Vayidaber Moshe kenel B'nai Yisrael, v'lo shamuel Moshe, mikotza ruach kasha. And Moshe relates this message to B'nai Israel once again. And then it says, they, do not, they did not listen to Moshe. As opposed to last week's parsha, Vayamein Ha'am, they believed him. They didn't listen to Moshe because for, for, the, for, an anguished, for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. They were working hard. They couldn't listen. Were they not working hard? Were they not slaves at the end of parsha Shemot, last week's parsha? The simple answer, of course is that B'nai Israel, something happened in their intermediary. Uh, Moshe came to the people, he told them, and they accepted it, they were optimistic. And then Moshe came to Paro, and of course, Paro, as we read, increases the workload of B'nai Israel by no longer giving them straw to make the mortar for the bricks. And B'nai Israel now are faced with 
much more work than they were before. And now when Moshe comes and reiterates the, the promise of God to take B'nai Israel out of Mitzrayim, they've lost it. Somehow, when there's no room for optimism, after a long, long time in slavery, or seemingly there's no room for optimism, but the first time someone comes in and says, you know what, everything is going to change, I'm here, God has sent me, we're going we're to take everybody out of Mitzrayim, we're going to go to Eretz Yisrael, people perk up and they say, wow, maybe, maybe we could look at reality differently. Maybe there is hope. And then immediately that smashed away. And that was Paro's intention, in fact. Paro says, Tichbad ha'avodah al ha'anashim v'al yishu'u b'divrei shaker. Tichbad ha'avodah al ha'anashim v'yasuva v'al yishu'u b'divrei shaker. Let them, let's, let's put heavy, heavy work on the people and they'll do it, and then they won't be listening to all this nonsense. In other words, whatever optimism was able to be there, despite the tens of years of slavery, the generations of slavery, it was taken away by increasing the workload. You thought you'd be optimistic with these promises. There's no room for optimism. And, and everything is taken away. And, and suddenly the optimism is gone. There's no room for optimism anymore because when the, the optimism just peaked out in a place where there was no room for optimism, it was smashed down by the extra workload. Now when Moshe comes to them again, it's not believable. But there is another difference between the two times that Moshe approaches B'nai Israel and... And the difference is, is that God's message, message to Moshe in Parshat Shmot, in the beginning of Parshat Va'era is different. The message in Parshat Shmot, this is something that Rav Sabato has pointed out, the message in Parshat Shmot is one of mercy. B'nai Israel are suffering in Egypt, and therefore God is going to take them to a good land. As opposed to Parshat Va'era, where... God has a promise to Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov that their children must be in Eretz Yisrael. And as a result, Bnei Yisrael must leave Mitzrayim and go to Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael being the fulfillment of this covenant that he has with the forefathers. And somehow, the, God's identification with suffering speaks to them. And they believe it. But God's fulfillment of the Shavuah to the Avot doesn't speak to them. And here, again, against, again, Emunah questions will be raised if God cares about B'nai Israel, if, there's a, if, it's, if, if he has a breed with the forefathers, so why are we suffering? Somehow that's less believable to them. This way or that way, the, the need of the optimism is crucial. And, and Paro is sensitive to this, and, and God is sensitive to this as well. Because when even Moshe loses his optimism at the beginning of, at the end of Sefer, at Parshat Shemot, after the workload was increased as a result of Moshe speaking to Paro, so Moshe is very angry. Why have you sent me? Better that they should stay slaves. 
at the place where they were and not stay slaves in a worse place. And God says, just wait, just wait. Things are going to change. And Moshe's faith is, shake, is, is shaken by the increasing of the workload, by the fact that B'nai Israel don't listen to him when he comes and retells them the story. And God pushes him along. Don't worry, things are going to work out. And, and this ability to encourage people in their difficult times and show them that there's a different reality as possible is crucial to our Geula. We don't always know if Gula is on the way. But we have to know that we have to be optimistic towards our Gula. And we have to know that despite the fact that sometimes there are failures on the way to Gula, there are lower points that we achieve on the way to Gula as B'nai Israel achieved at the end of Harshat Shemot, that they went to a more vicious slavery, nonetheless, they were on the way to Geulah. Moshe was sent, God was in on the issue, and things were going to change. At this point, we would like to ask Rav Tavori to share his words with us. When I was a child growing up in America, we used to discuss sometimes who was the God of Hadar. And some people used to say Rav Moshe was known as the biggest posek in, uh, in, in America, for sure, in the whole world. Some people used to say Rav Soloveitchik, the Gon of, of Yeshiva University. And some people used to say uh, Rav Baron Cutler, the Rosh Yeshiva of Lakewood. And someone said to me that it's possible that the real Gadol Hador is some shoemaker, some very simple person who lives someplace in Geula and Me'asharim in in Eretz Yisrael, in some corner, who knows who the, God, the real Gadol Hadar. Very often, many great Gadolim somehow never become famous. They're very quiet, private people, <coughs> and the world doesn't hear of them. Today we'll discuss the yard site, the life of one of those types of people, Reb Shmuel Bilblitzki, who whose name is probably not well known to most people. But in many respects, he was one of the great gedolim of the last generation. Reb Shmuel Blitzki was born in Lithuania in 1888, in Chavdalid Iyar of 1888, who was born in a small town near Suvalk in Lithuania. His family were business people. He was the only one in his family who devoted his time, really, to the world of Torah. He went to learn in Slabatka, and he was known as the Ilui of his hometown. After learning in Slabatka for a short time, for a while, he went to learn in Tells. Eventually, he wanted to go to learn to Panavish. Specifically, he wanted to learn by Rebitzel Lepanavisher. Rebitzel Lepanavisher had been the Rosh Hashiva of Slabatka, before Reb Shmuel had come to Slabatka, His hashra'a, his atmosphere, the, cre- the atmosphere that he created was felt in Slabatka, but he himself was not there. Slabatka, of course, was a Muslim yeshiva, and the Litvak, Rebitz Lepanovisher, did not, did not want to devote time, did not want to give a shear in Musser, and eventually he left the yeshiva before Rabbi Shmuel Blubitz came there. 
But somehow Reb Shmuel was felt very influenced by this Rosh Hashiva Rebitzla Panavizer, and he left both Slabatka and Tells, and he went to Panavish to learn by Rebitzla. Rebitzla had a small group of students, they called them the, 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 the kibbutz. And in order to be in that kibbutz, you were chosen, hand chosen by Rebitzla Panavizer, who chose Reb Shmuel as one of the first members of the kibbutz. In fact, from then on, Reb Shmuel was the one who chose his friends, his chaverim, to be in that kibbutz. Reb gave him the right to choose who would be in that kibbutz. He stayed there in Panavish and was very, very much influenced, as we'll see, by Reb Panavisher, and he thought that this is his main Rebbe. After the Ptira, after the death of Rebitzela, when Shmuel Blavitsky was not a young man anymore, he decided that he would go to Berlin. In Berlin, he looked specifically to learn Bereb Chaim Heller, that great Gaon, who was an expert in Semitic languages, besides being a Gaon in Choshen Mishpat and Torah and Kala Torah Kula, Chaim Heller was also a, a scholar. And he had a base medrash in Berlin, where Reb Shmuel Blavitsky learned. He also, at that time, began his academic career in the University of Berlin. Interestingly enough, he was fairly old for a student, but he stayed in Berlin as a student until he was 38 years old in the year 1926. Uh, unfortunately, Reb Shmuel was a bachelor at that time and never got married his entire life. He basically had no family. After being in Berlin, a while later, he came on Aliyah. When he, was in, when he came to Israel, he began to teach. There was a school in Yerushalayim known as Seminar Mizrahi, and some of the teachers that taught in that seminar became very well known, very famous, as great Tamni Chachamim. Professor Harav Shol Lieberman taught for a while at that seminar. Rav Zevin, that great Tamit Chacham who wrote Moadim Balacha, Lor Halacha, and other important Svarim, both taught at Seminar Mizrahi at the same time as Rabbi Shmuel in terms of Chinuch, basically, after being in the world of Seminar Mizrahi, of teaching for a, a short time, Rabbi Shmuel decided to leave the world of teaching, but never to leave the world of Torah. He moved to Tel Aviv, became a businessman, but was totally immersed in Torah. He wrote and learned, wrote Mechkar, unfortunately, very little of what he wrote has been published. Apparently, a great deal of his writings were lost during the war, during the First World War. He, in that respect, shared the same destiny, the same fate, as his Rebbe, Rebbe Tzlapanavizhar. Although we know and heard stories that Rebbe Tzlapanavizhar was a, a great gong, the little that we have from him does indeed prove that he was a gone, but 
we have as a literary output very little. While he was in business, he lived a quiet life. His mother was alive. He took care of her. Although he was busy with the world of finance, he kept his farim in the office and sat and learned in the office. He was so quiet and so anonymous that it was shocking that anybody ever heard of him. And how did it happen that the world did hear about him? That is the interesting story. In those days, in Eretz Yisrael, Svarim stores were not just a place where you go in and buy Svarim, more or less like we see today. But they were really Svarim stores that were a base vad lachachamim. Svarim stores that Gedolim used to walk in and talk in learning. People used to exchange views and exchange comments in the Svarim store. There was a very famous Svarim store of Reb Michal Rebinovich in Yerushalayim. And Gedolim used to, Tamine Chachamim used to sit and talk there. One day, Shai Agnon writes that he was in that Svarim, in such a Svarim store, in Reb Michal Rebinovich's Svarim store. And Two people argued about uh, Pshatan and Mordechai. So one said, okay, let's take out a Gemara and look up the, look up the Mordechai. A person who was Tsanua in the corner, sitting there, smiled at them and said, there's no need to take out the Mordechai, and he quoted it by heart. And this went on for more than one source. A person quoted a, a Rosh, another person quoted the Shulchan Aruch, and this person smiled and said, he knew it all by heart. At this point, Agnon said he was slightly impressed, but Bikiyim of such a nature didn't really, really impress him that much. But later on, he got to know Rabbi Shmuel very well, and it was Agnon really that made Shmuel famous. The the book that that Rabbi that uh, that Agnon wrote, Yamim no Ra'im, is unlike the rest of, or most of, Agnon's literature. One book was proposed by Agnon to write, a collection of Midrashim, Agadot, Divrei Torah, about Yamim no Ra'im. When he published the book, or before he published the book, he was a little hesitant to enter an area which was not just literary, but it was the world of Torah, the world of Halacha. And he spoke to his friends, and he said to them, he expressed his hesitation to print the Sefer without somebody going over it. And they said, why don't you go to this Reb Shmuel and ask him to do it. And Reb Shmuel took it and immediately made comments on this and that, said sometimes the phrase wasn't exact, quoted exactly correctly. Sometimes there are different manuscripts. One time he said that Agnon had the Rambam and the Ravid backwards and Agnon said it couldn't be because he found it that way in the Kolbo. He explained that it was a mistake here and explained how it was based. At that point Agnon became very friendly with Bielabitsky and and was extremely impressed by him. In the introduction to Yamim no Ra'im it says 
that he wants to thank his friend Reb Shmuel Bilablitsky for help in the book. But he wrote there, Todatine Tunabaze, my my thanks, my great my I'm grateful. I wish, wish to express my gratefulness to Reb Shmuel Bilablitsky. The Gaon Ha'amiti, the true Gaon. Reb Shmuel had read the entire book and he read the introduction as well. And he said that I w- w- would request from you to take out the word Amiti. You wrote Hagon Ha'amiti, the true Gaon. He said in today's generation he's willing to have the word Hagon there. We know, unfortunately, the word gone has been influenced by inflation to a great degree. Anybody who knows a little bit of Torah can be called already Harav HaGon. But Rabbi Shmuel Bablitsky said, Gon HaMiti, the true Gon, that I would not want you to put him by my name. He said, the only Gon HaMiti that I know, the real Gon HaMiti, was Rabbi So just from this story, you see one the Anivus, the modesty of Shmuelitsky. On the other hand, you see a, with a little bit of sense of humor his attitude toward the world that anybody can be called a gone, it doesn't make a difference. You also see his attitude toward his Rebbe Muvak, to the person that he really felt was his Rebbe, Reb Reb Rebitzlapanavisha. The stories that we know about or more directly than I know about Yerushalayim, were all based on stories written by Agnon. Agnon was Maspid Bielblitzky at least three times, and in his books and in other collections of Barilan, there are Hespedim eulogies on Shmuelblitzky written by Agnon. Although he left the world of academia, and the professional world of yeshivas. Reb Shmuel remained in learning all his life, and apparently Agnon used his influence to see to it that eventually he would receive the recognition that he so deserved. Near the end of his life, at a time when people really are beginning or in the stage of retirement, the University of Barilan was founded, and Agnon recommended that Shmuel Bielblitzky be appointed as the head of the Talmud department, the head, the dean of Barilan, and he did accept that position. He founded the Talmud department of Barilan, was known as the head, but unfortunately only for a few years. He was Nifter on Chavtes Teves, of the year 19... Um, I have to check. I don't really remember. About, um, I would say, around 1956, 1960, he was Nifter, and he had only been the head of Barilan for a number of years. Agnon also talks about his devotion to Torah even when he was sick. 
they had constant phone conversations. But a short time went by, and nobody, Bielblitzki had not called Agnon, so Agnon called him, and he explained that he couldn't call because he was too ill. When Agnon came to visit him, he really, really seemed almost completely out of it. But then they started talking and learning, and it somehow woke him up, and he got out of his bed, went to the Svarim, started discussing the Rambam and the Ravid, and as if he was young and healthy again. A great Tamit Chacham, a person who had a certain tragic life. As I said, he never got married, never had a family. His Svarim were lost. Very little of his literary output exists. The only thing we have is a little sefer called Eim Masoret, where he writes recollections of Lithuanian Jewry and Lithuanian yeshivas. Specifically, he writes about Rabbi Tzalapanevizer. And the literary source that we have about him, as I said before, and we've quoted over and over again, Agnon really tried to make him famous. Yehezichro Baruch. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. And that about wraps up another Arab Shabbat program. And just to summarize some of the thoughts that we discussed, whether on a personal level, whether on a national level, we have to remember reality can change. We are able to change the reality that we're in, whether on an individual level, whether on a national level. And even when our situation that we deem as a bad situation gets worse, it doesn't mean that we're finished. It doesn't mean that it's over. Who more than us who witnessed, or if not us, then our parents witnessed the state of Israel being created on the ashes of the Holocaust, the Holocaust's lowest, lowest moment in Jewish history, and three years later, the state of Israel, Rashid's Michat Gulatenu, who more than us know this, that even when things are at the worst, it doesn't mean that getting better is far away. And with those thoughts, let's all have a good winter and a Shabbat Shalom.